Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, we feature another edition of Ads and Fads, testing your TV memory skills. We take a fond look back at the world's worst car. We extol the virtues of coffee, the wonder drug. And we shake our heads over a guy's scheme to be paid for getting watched online. The Old Dog's conversation is with Alan Einstein, a longtime teacher with an unlikely sideline. He now trains other teachers in a new approach to engaging students. Stay with us. So, Paul, Yo. what is on your mind today? I'm glad you asked, Jim, because I just finished watching for the two millionth time an ad featuring Joe Namath telling me that I need his Medicare Advantage program because I'm missing out on benefits. benefits oh, yeah. You know, like yeah. being carried in a sultan's chair to your doctor's appointments. or you know. Wait, I didn't see that commercial. All right, well, maybe I'm exaggerating. Yeah, maybe a little. But, you know, I what's your problem? What, well, what's irritating for me yeah. is those ads kind of reveal a manipulative approach to people our age. Right. Right away, they're saying, you're missing out on something. Mm-hmm. Shame on you. Yep. Then they put a, a person who used to be a famous celebrity with some credibility, Joe mm-hmm. Namath in this case. Tom Selleck. Yes, and you, uh, you're you supposed to trust what they have to say. Sure. And therefore switch from whatever you're doing now to whatever they're advocating. I don't know. It's kind of manipulative, and it's irritating because it's on so much. Well, Paul, have you thought about maybe watching TV less or just saying no now, there's, there's a solution, mm-hmm. a solution, but that doesn't clear up the uh, video pollution going, going on now by advertisers. Yeah. So you feel that you could be a spokesperson for people who don't want any more of this advertising. Hi, I'm Paul Menzel. I have no credibility whatsoever, (laughs) and therefore, don't listen to the rest of this commercial. Yeah. Um, There's something to talk about in terms of how are people viewing seniors uh, as as a a purchaser of product? Yeah, right. And it seems to be mostly in line with how we are going to spend our money. Uh, introducing us to something that we feel we're either missing out on or go. if we don't do something about it, something bad is going to happen to us. Yeah. It's kind of a stock approach to folks our age. One thing that occurs to me about this advertising is that I know who is writing the commercials, who is producing the commercials. And these are not people our age, Paul. These are people in their 20s and 30s. I know this because I used to be one of them. I've been in advertising that long. And I know that in many cases, people who have no clue about what older people think or how older people behave or what they are capable of deciding for themselves are giving us information and couching it in such a way that they think will appeal to us. So are you suggesting that these advertising agencies should hire seniors like, well, you and I. You and I. uh, To advise them on how to approach us. This is my appeal. And I want to put it out there right now that all people listening to this podcast who are involved in advertising agencies immediately think about hiring us. 
And it's not self-serving, is no, it? No, not at all. No, no, no. Not at because all. Because for the most part, you'll, you'll offer your services for free, right? No, no, not at all. <laughs> it's time for our next Ads and Fads segment. But first, a bit of a complaint. This segment is meant to be a memory challenge for our listeners, but some folks in podcast land are Googling for the answers before they can experience the frustration of trying to remember something from over 50 years ago. Come on, folks, get with the program. If this continues, we will be forced to name names. Feeling better now, Paul? Mm-hmm. May I continue? Mm-hmm. Ads and Fads for this episode focuses on Bonanza, the hour-long Western that premiered in 1959 and ran for 14 years on NBC. The show focused on the Cartwright family, a father and his three sons. Our challenge for you is to name the four main actors and the characters they played. And, for extra credit, come up with the actor and character name of the cook. We'll give you the answers later in this episode. The car was not only ugly, it was seriously flawed. But it was the cheapest car on the road, if you could keep it running. It was more likely to be the cheapest car on blocks rusting out in your garage. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for June 10th, 2021. The car was the Yugo, an export of Yugoslavia that set the bar for automotive lemons. Someone remarked that the car looked like it had been assembled at gunpoint, which was apt considering that the manufacturer, Zastava, also made firearms. <laughs> the car review in Consumer Reports was embarrassingly honest. The engine struggled and strained to climb highway grades in high gear. The Acceleration from 0 to 60 miles an hour took 18.5 seconds. The transmission was the worst encountered in years, and the interior was covered in cloth that resembled towel material. When it finally hit the market in 1985, sales were brisk until maintenance problems started to surface. For example, the cars were shipped with spark plugs that couldn't handle unleaded fuel. More seriously, if the timing belt wasn't serviced at 30,000 miles, the engine pistons could ram into the valves and destroy them. Mercifully, the Yugo sales in America fatally declined in 1992 due to bad reviews and a recall. It didn't help that the Yugo became the butt of jokes. Here's a couple. Yugo came out with a clever anti-theft device. They made their name bigger. Or, you know why the Yugo has a standard rear window defogger? To keep your hands warm while you push it. Nobody wants to drive a punchline. Nevertheless, the Yugo has a small but dedicated group of fans who have sought out and restored a shrinking pool of the unfortunate cars. One owner praised its mechanical simplicity by explaining that you can fix a Yugo with a butter knife and a rubber band, which would seem <laughs> to be as much a flaw as a virtue. <laughs> I know the obvious benefits of coffee. It keeps you awake and jittery. But now it's a wonder drug? This pod nugget is from the People's Pharmacy column in the Houston Chronicle for April 8th, 2021. According to the People's Pharmacy, when coffee is roasted, compounds are formed that appear to protect the nervous system from injury and damage. Since none of us is chewing raw coffee beans, that benefit covers all of us coffee drinkers. 
In addition, caffeine may offer some protective benefits with Alzheimer's patients. And here's the best part. When cocoa or chocolate is added to coffee, it may even be more helpful. Oh, good. Yeah, Italian researchers reported that older people consuming two or more cups of mocha coffee were less depressed and scored higher on cognitive function tests. So now you have some ammunition when your GP tells you to cut down on the coffee. If you want to sleep better, just reply, I may sleep better, but I will be depressed and drooling. As comforting as this research is, it doesn't go far enough for me. I'm hoping that the Irish are investigating the health benefits of Irish cream added to coffee. Here, here. Absolutely. Would you pay $5 million to watch someone on a TV screen going about their life for five years? Mm. At that price, they should toss in Netflix, HBO, and the Disney Channel so you have something to turn to in the slow moments. This pod nugget is from the Insider website. An artist named Tim Inzana has locked himself in a shed for 100 days, live-streaming his daily work as an artist. He intends to remain in the shed for a year as he attempts to sell himself as live wall art. As he explains it, the artwork is me creating the artwork. Mm. If he can connect with the right people of means, he will lock himself in an empty room, which he will slowly fill with his art. And some other things, too, probably. His life in a box will be live-streamed 24-7 to a custom frame he designed that will hang on the wall of the buyer. In case you're interested, he is offering 20 of these five-year frames at a price of $5 million <laughs> each. And for $10 million, he will stay in the room for 10 years, <laughs> an option only available to one buyer. If there are no takers, I can't imagine that. Could you, Paul? No. He is considering a public option. If he can get 7,000 subscribers on Twitch at $4.99 a month, he will continue the scam, I mean the live broadcast, for up to five years. So far, he has sold only 102 subscriptions. Currently, his girlfriend supports him and brings <laughs> him groceries through a window in the shack. She isn't saying whether this support will continue for the five or ten year options, but for her sake, let's hope she has alternatives. In a moment of candor, Izana said, I don't know exactly what I'm doing, to be honest. There's elements of me just following hunches and wanting to make the world a better place. It wasn't clear how he would make the world a better place while being locked in a room for an extended period of time. But it is comforting that he has a higher purpose for being kept off the streets. <laughs> All right, it's time for the answers for ads and fads. The cast of Bonanza was Lorne Green, who played the father, Ben Cartwright. The three sons were Pernell Roberts as Adam Cartwright, Dan Blocker as Hoss Cartwright, and the youngest son was Michael Landon as Little Joe Cartwright. The family cook was Hop Singh, played by Victor Sun Young, a character that seems somewhat racist today. Hey, here are three fun facts about Bonanza. Okay. Fact one, the season one ratings for the show were terrible. But since it was the first show broadcast in color, RCA, the parent company of NBC, kept it on the air to help sell color TVs. Fact two, the four main characters always wore the same costumes. I wondered about <laughs> that. This was a budget consideration so that they could use stock footage that always matched. We assume the costumes got washed 
and replaced as needed. And finally, fact three. Anytime one of the Cartwrights fell in love, the woman would end up either dead or leaving. Oh, no. Yeah, this became known as the Cartwright curse. (laughs) (laughs) Alan Einstein was a teacher for many years in Detroit's less advantaged schools. For most of that time, he was also a photographer for the Detroit Pistons. Now retired from both careers, Alan has devised a fascinating way to help kids learn faster and more fully, and he has the success stories to prove it. Could you give us a little hint about your background? Where are you from originally? I'm from Detroit. I'm a Detroiter. I've stayed here. Um, Went to public schools in Detroit, went to uh, local universities, and uh, I currently live 20 minutes from Detroit. So why did you make the choice to become a teacher? I presume it was in college. Well, you'll relate to this, that we had this thing called the war, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. All I wanted to do was stay out of the draft, so I went to school. And then uh, I just saw frustrations in the educational processes and what I had gone through and sort of disliked it. I wasn't keen to it because I wasn't a learner by learning from books. I like to have hands-on activity and be active in my learning processes. So it led me to, to teaching, and I, you know, I, that's where I got a job out of college, up in the Flint area of, of all places. Huh. Don't, so it, don't it, drink it, the uh, water. <laughs> um, that's probably a good idea then and now. <laughs> <laughs> Those people tend to leave teaching after a couple of years. Why did you stick with it? Well, I like dealing with the underachievers and those who did not find success in education. And I was sort of a rebel. I didn't like doing things by the rules. And and I was able to have some administrators who let me do things differently. In 1999, I started a program called Project 2000, where I had a portable out in back of the school building, where I had 14 kids that I taught all day long, the eighth grade curriculum who had failed the sixth and seventh grade. And I was just successful at getting to kids uh, and motivating them to learn and to respect themselves and then other people. So I was good at it. So then I stayed with it. So how did you go about creating a system that works? First of all, you have to teach a kid, a student what success is. I think a lot of students are in school just because they have to be there. They don't want to learn. They don't, they don't know what goals can be achieved by learning. And I think that it is a wonderful thing to see a kid's like light bulb light up and, and to be excited about doing something. And that's real motivating to me. From the successful experiment uh, with these eighth graders, how did that transition into the Einstein method? When I got out of teaching in 2016, I really wanted to do something in education to help kids. And I went from starting my own school, of which I was close to doing, to try and figure out what the best way to help as many students as I could. And I figured the way to impact more students than anywhere else is to impact teachers, because these teachers are all dealing with hundreds of kids every school year. Then the key was, I work with a partner, her name is Karen Boyk, who's an expert on brain research. And we taught together for over 20 years, and she taught an all-girls class. I had an all-boys class. I do have a question, though. You and Karen initially were teaching same-sex classes. Is that something you advocate? Absolutely. I know that, that unfortunately, with our 
Title IX and, and, and all sorts of other administrative problems for lack of creativity of administrators and principals, people aren't willing to try it. What is it about the Einstein method that is different from normal teaching methods that is as taught in normal schools that makes people, kids, motivated to learn? What is that thing that you do? Well, that thing is really not a thing. It's things. It's, if I was to say it's a thing, it's really caring about the student and finding what is going to motivate that student to learn. I really believe that most kids sit in class, they're bored, and they're just are not motivated to learn. So three things that I stress in all presentations are brain breaks, because a kid can only sit still for so many minutes. And I mean minutes, depending on their age. I mean, the average is 20 minutes. So depending on the grade level, you need a break and you need to have the brain get stimulated, whether that's cold water, getting up, whatever it takes. Peppermints also stimulate the brain. So it's a very simple thing before every test in high school, kids should be having peppermints. Then movement is really important. I think that um, it's necessary for a kid to get up and move and not be sitting in a seat the whole time they're there. So most teachers will like pass out papers. In my classroom, the kids got up and got papers. It stimulates them. And then music, I think, is really an important factor in a classroom. A music can be used for three different things, as I used to talk about. It can be used to signal an activity. So when the kids come into the classroom, there can be music playing. When the music stops, it means it's time to learn. Or it can signal the time to start math. It could also be for energy. You can have the kids singing or dancing okay, as a brain break. Okay. It could also be used just to change the mood. You know, if you put on some classical music, all of a sudden things are going to slow down, depending on the classical music, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, The Einstein method deals with trying to find out what is going to motivate the student to want to learn. Obviously, there were times of trial and error, right? When you tried things that did not work. Uh, Tell me an example of something you tried and it just didn't work. You know, most of my students in the eighth grade were non-readers. So how do you get somebody motivated to read? The first thing I did is listen to books on tape. So the biggest humorous thing that I did is I read a book about submarines and and U-boats that I thought was really going to be motivating for these kids to learn. It had a lot of vulgar words in it. So I bought 14 hardcovers of a 300-page book. I bought the book on tape, and we started listening to it. After about 20 minutes, one of the kids just raises his hand and says, why are we listening to this? Who's interested in this? And we took a class vote. No one liked it at all. I just stopped. But books on tape became a very beneficial thing to get kids to read because I could take the classic books that the curriculum insisted that they read. And then, again, I had all these books that were interesting for them to read, like The Outsiders, and create a community that the kids can trust you as a teacher is really part of the Einstein method. Relate to the kids and let them understand that you can learn as much from them as a teacher as they can learn from you as a student. Now, it it sounds like in a workshop with teachers, you're asking them for a lot of change. Did you get pushback from teachers? No, no. In in the presentations, the teachers are so motivated because it's hands-on. And this obviously is before COVID. But if I did a two-hour presentation... The, the staff was not sitting for more than 15 minutes at a time. They were up and doing things individually as a group, and they had things and strategies they could use the next day in their classroom that didn't cost any money. Hmm. Simple things like getting up and doing relays, okay, something as simple as that. Um, 
and, and you teach them things, uh, how to make like an eight page book where the students can take notes in this little thing they can put in their pocket and take home. Mm. And again, it doesn't cost any money. Uh, working with Karen also was very helpful because she had this brain research. We did a whole lesson on how boys and girls learn differently. And as it's motivating as a teacher, when someone comes in and doesn't tell you what to do, but says, we have additional tools for your toolbox. Think about this. Use what you want to. So you had to make adjustments so, for virtual learning then over the last Oh, absolutely. Year. We yeah. changed. In fact, for virtual learning, that was a positive thing of it because I expanded what I was doing instead of just teaching teachers. I was now teaching parents and, and community members and community groups. So I gave, I think, seven or eight presentations to PTA groups and parent support groups of how to help them at home work with their students virtually, mm. how to set up an area and how to do brain breaks at home, what strategies of setting up some boards. They need a schedule so they know it's time for school and to get dressed, not to be in their pajamas when they're, they're doing their schoolwork. You know, s- simple common sense thing the parents just don't know. Well, obviously the parents are an important component in any learning situation. Uh, so are you going to continue your workshops with parents once we get back yeah. to in, meeting in the classroom? Yes, absolutely. Parents and community members have done work with, with uh, Head Start, uh, the YMCAs. I've done some work with other local activities. There's a place called Northeast Guidance Center. Anyone who deals with children would benefit from our presentation. So how long do you plan to continue doing the Einstein method? I see as long as I'm healthy to be doing this for a lot of years. When I say a couple years, it's because of the financial aspect of it. That You know, when I go into a school, I leave books, I leave games, I take them food. It costs money. And the whole fundraising component of a nonprofit when you're small is very draining. So for a nonprofit, to last for five years, I'm just honored. I mean, I am so humbled. You know, when I get a check in the mail and somebody's sending me, whether it be $25 or $5,000, I'm humbled by it. The most rewarding thing for me is when a former student of mine sends me a check. Uh, it almost brings a, a tear to my eye because I taught them the importance of paying it forward and, and giving to people because you may think you have nothing. There's somebody who has less. Alan, your teaching career has been very time-consuming, and yet you still had time for a second career, photographing the Detroit Pistons. Tell us about that. For 37 years, I would teach school during the day and then you know, come home and rest for a little bit and then go out to the Palace of Auburn Hills and come home at 11 o'clock at night and be able to work the next day without any problem. Uh, again, I, I made those options because realistically, uh, you know, teachers don't make that much money. So it was, gave me the opportunity to really do something I like. It opened up so many doors of helping some players understand that they're human beings. They're not better than, than the students that I taught, especially when I was teaching special ed. And there's a really equal sides there and learning from each other. So one of the players said, I want to come in. And, and the kids had written him letters and done research on him and really knew about this player. And he came in. For 20 minutes, he said. He ended up coming in at 10 o'clock in the morning and leaving at 3.30 after the buses left. Went out and bought lunch for all my students. Okay. And for them to learn from my students and to tell me for years what a great experience that was, you know, that's part of teaching too. All teaching doesn't take place in the classroom. 
Now, if somebody wanted to get involved with what you do or send you some support, how do they go about that? So if anyone wanted to support what I'm doing at the Einstein Method, first of all, I encourage you to take a look at the website and learn more about it. There's some great videos on there. There's some great testimonials on there. The website is theeinsteinmethod.org, all one word, theeinsteinmethod.org. So I would love for anyone listening to this podcast to email me and possibly even set up a presentation. Take a look at what you see on the website. Look forward to hearing from you. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.